you know, in an environment that was surrounded by militias and terrorists and military that basically took this general posture of shoot first, ask questions later. We were, we were trying to swim upstream against that and ask ourselves, is, is there a different way to be in the world where we could dare to actually love first and ask questions later? Could, could we suspend some of the questions that hang us up so much and slow us down and, and make us play it a little too safe and could we just jump forward with, with this idea that we now call preemptive love? And uh, so, yeah, for the last decade plus, we've been blackmailing ourselves, painting ourselves into a corner so that when, when the world is scary as hell, we don't have any way out except to love anyway. Welcome to chapter 24 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is my chance to talk with people who saw something wrong and they gave a damn about it over and over and over again. One of my greatest hopes is to inspire you, but more importantly, I want you to do, to act. My intent is to strip away the the sexiness of giving a damn and give you a real picture of what it takes should you choose to give more dams than you currently do. It is a hard, but oh, so worth it life, friends. I also want you to realize that giving a damn can look a million different ways, different for each one of us. So one week, I'm going to interview Peter Shankman, whose mission is to reach out to people with ADHD. And other weeks, it will look like this one, which is a drastically different picture of giving a damn. Anyway, how are you? I hope you're doing well. Kind of got intense there for a minute. I'm so glad to be back with you all. And really, it's been a hard week for all of us, hopefully. If you're listening to this podcast when it releases the second week of August in the year 2017 AD, then Charlottesville, Virginia is all over social media. And for good reason. The Unite the Right rally took place over the weekend. And basically, white supremacists and neo-Nazis everywhere. And it was a bunch of uh, oppressed, and I say oppressed in air quotes, white men marching to make sure they don't get forgotten in history. So I'm feeling a lot of different things right now, as you probably are as well. I've cried this past weekend. I've prayed a lot. And I've felt anger in a whole bunch of other things. And that brings us to this week's podcast guest. Jeremy Courtney from Preemptive Love is... My goodness, he is a hero of mine and just an incredible person. And you're going to hear some of that. And I hope you do some investigating after if you've never heard of Jeremy Courtney or Preemptive Love Coalition. I hope you go look them up and you'll see a little bit why I've had, I'm having him on and also why he's a hero of mine. The work he and his family do in Iraq and Syria and in so many other places is intense and amazing. Their motto is love anyway, love anyway, which is a very helpful word, again, in our current day, not that we're in the danger in the intense situations that he and his family live in every day in Iraq and Syria, but we have opportunities to process what's going on right now and still 
Love Anyway. Love Anyway has been incredibly important to me over the last year or two since I found out about Jeremy and preemptive love. And it's a very hopeful word. And it's also why I decided to bump this conversation up in the lineup so that we could share it this week with everything going on. So my name is Nick Lapara, and here's my conversation with incredible human and founder of Preemptive Love Coalition, Jeremy Courtney. Jeremy Courtney, I'm so excited to have you on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. So welcome. Thanks, man. Honored to be with you. Yeah. And for everybody out there that's listening a few weeks from now, it is 1036 in, uh, okay. So do you live in Mosul? Is that where you live? No, we live outside of Mosul. Almost, almost, uh, yeah. I mean, a good part of the city has been decimated now and people are just starting to find their way back home in certain parts. So, uh, life is coming back to Mosul, but it's not, not what it used to be. Great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's helpful just to get some context about where you are. So it's 1030 where he is. I'm so grateful, uh, Jeremy, that you're on with us. So let's, uh, I, I, none of these conversations have really a pattern, but this one I want to kind of start from the current day and work our way backwards just because of the kinds of things that you're involved in and the work that you're doing. And I want to give people a really good framework uh, for, for what you're doing before uh, we get to who you are and your story and a little bit of that. So first, um, can you walk us through life right now for you guys in Iraq and Syria and, you know, include just some things like why in the hell would you move your family over there? And, uh, cause you have two kids, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So two kids, a wife, you know, a family. And I asked that a little bit tongue in cheek. I grew up in Guatemala during the end of their civil war. I saw, you know, super terrible things, you know, probably not to the level that you've seen, but you know, I've seen people get shot, like murdered right in front of me and I almost got kidnapped. So I've, I've been through a lot of that. So it's a little bit tongue in cheek cause I've been through that, but just explain what life is like right now, you know, current day, most people, everybody that's listening and not most people, everyone that's listening right now is only seeing, you know, that part of the world through, you know, a television screen or through the screen on their phone. So just give us some context for what life is like right now over there. Yeah, it really depends on, where you are or or where you lived uh before the rise of isis so isis really came on strong in 2013 uh kind of as a 2.0 3.0 version of al-qaeda in iraq um and as they swept their way across uh the country really they, they gained international infamy in 2014 making their way ultimately controlling about a third of the geographic territory of the country and, and just overran, you know, huge towns, cities like Mosul. Uh, and really people kind of were forced with just a couple of options. Either they were driven out of town by the, the terror and the, the tactics that these guys were using, or they, for any number of reasons, they chose to kind of chance it with ISIS. They, they chose to, homestead to to stay at home to not surrender their sovereignty to someone else and go live in a camp um but just said okay these guys might be horrific but we're going to stay here because this is our home and and we we'd rather die at home than die in a camp out there somewhere in the desert in 123 degree heat so that decision is a major fork in the road. If you lived through ISIS coming to town, if you lived through ISIS overrunning your 
your region, which many people did not, especially people who were either with the government, with the military, or belonged to this particular ethno-religious group called the Yazidis. They were, they were especially met with um, genocidal treatment by ISIS. Shia people across the country were killed disproportionately, and, and Christians were, were disproportionately driven from their lands. Christians weren't killed en masse in the way that, that some of the other groups were, but Christians were forced to leave almost uniformly if they didn't convert, which, which most of them just chose to leave. So that's left us in a situation now in Iraq where we've got you know, millions of people who have been displaced from their homes. And in those intervening years, as the military has come to try and drive ISIS out, what has often resulted is the destruction of your home, the destruction of your hometown, the destruction of your entire city in some cases. And so it may be time now to go home. ISIS might not be in your town anymore. You might be ready to leave the tent that you've been living in for the last three years. But what are you going to go home to? Uh, in, in some parts of Mosul and some of the Christian towns, the historically Christian towns surrounding Mosul, places like Fallujah, um, and some other places across the country, there's, you know, 50% of the, the city is, is damaged or gone. And so that's, that's really, we, we face this dual threat right now where we've still got ISIS uh, starving people out. We've still got people fleeing for their lives. Uh, we've still got old people and, and certain groups of people choosing to stay at home, even as the bombs and the bullets fall. And so they're starving to death. Um, and then we've got these people who have been on the run for years who kind of have an opportunity to go home, but what are they going to go home to? They need someone to help them rebuild the house, literally brick by brick, put a, put a window in the wall, put a door on so that they can sleep safe at night. And then they need help getting back to work and creating jobs in their, in their communities again. So tell me about... Um your team there, right? So we're going to get to talk about preemptive love, but you know, you guys are not there alone, right? It's your family. And what, what does the makeup of your team look like? Who, who has committed to be there with you guys? Yeah, it's a beautiful group of, uh, on the Iraq side of, uh, Westerners and locals who come together hand in hand to, to say we belong to each other and we're going to, we're going to try Bombs are falling and snipers are sniping. We're, we're going to try to be the people who, and everyone else is running away from the violence. We're going to see what we can do to run toward the violence, toward those who are suffering. When, when a fair amount of the people are sitting on the sidelines with money, sitting on the sidelines with aid, with help, saying, hey, if, if y'all can make it out of the conflict zone and make it to us, we're here ready to help you. We're saying, all right, let's, let's drive past all that and see if we could you know, dare to kind of go where others aren't going to, to reach the people that aren't being reached otherwise. So it's a, we are a beautiful group of diversity in a lot of ways. We've got Kurds and Arabs and Canadians and Americans and uh, Muslims and Christians all trying to work together to build or bring about this thing that we call the, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. 
Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And for those of you listening, if you just go back on Jeremy's or Preemptive Love's, you know, timeline on Twitter or Facebook, like you'll see the videos, you'll see that that this is it's truly as he just described, as Jeremy just described, it's not them sitting on the sidelines waiting for people to come like they're right there in the middle of it. And I've always just found that super fascinating because that is counterintuitive to the part of every human that says like, protect yourself, keep yourself safe. Like you guys are ignoring that a little bit. And it's a a lot of it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, How did you recruit your team to come join you? Like what's the, what's the pitch there? Or are people like knocking on your door saying, Hey, we want to join you in this work. Yeah, it's, it's been both Um, early recruitment, early team bonding, early leadership, really. I mean, a lot of it's just about me and my own growth was not great. Um, trying to figure out how to move in. So we've been here over a decade and that means we moved in during the middle of the Iraq war when U.S. troops were, were still here and, and British troops were here. And I mean, the whole coalition was here and we moved in at the height of sectarian conflict, civil war, essentially. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I'd never lived anywhere like this before. Um, it was very naive. And I think that naivety was, was ultimately a blessing, but it means that you you trip over yourself and you make a lot of mistakes. And, and there's real people and real lives and real families who who can get you know caught up, implicated, damaged, hurt by those mistakes that I made in my own personal growth trajectory and things like that. So... I mean, we, we managed to recruit a couple rounds of people who kind of came and went because the, the situation on the ground was dynamic. Um, it was hard. We were changing as an organization. You know, we were kind of groping our way through the conflict, trying to figure out who we were going to be and what we were going to be about in the early days. And, and then I was on a personal trajectory and my wife and I were on a marriage trajectory, you know, trying to find ourselves and understand ourselves, And, and so I think that early days were just hard. I mean, they were just hard all the way around on us, hard on others. But when you stay the course, when you don't quit, when you don't give up, when you keep pushing into pain and you, you allow yourself to be present to the things that hurt and, and you continue to walk toward the things that scare you most, you know, they're, there really is a beautiful place on the other side of all that death. And we, we experienced a lot of death of our own souls, of our own dreams. And so I think coming out, sort of resurrecting on the other side of that, finding new life on the other side of a lot of that, now we have seen more people who find their way to us. And it's not always only us kind of going out and pounding the pavement and trying to find the right people. So uh, we've gotten really lucky as well. I mean, we've, had a couple of people who have chosen to be in it now for years and years on end, including one, one couple who's been in it with us side by side for six years. And so when you, when you walk that much road together and, and you go through that much hell and heaven together, uh, mm. it, it feels, feels really special, really unique. Yeah, that's Super beautiful. I'm, I'm so excited about that. Um, let's take a detour here. Uh, let's go back to the very beginning, if, if you're willing. Uh, take me back as far as you want to go. I want to hear um, some of your story. Basically, what I want to lead up to is I, I want you to identify through um, your upbringing, your parents, your family, experiences that you had. 
what are the what are the things that stick out in your mind from the beginning that made you the person you are today and then lead us to the point where you know preemptive you know where you lived before preemptive love and how that got started and how you you know you just ex, you just described some of that but like how you made that leap to leave the comfort of you know western society to just do up until now over a decade of really really hard things so can you can you take us through that story i would i'd be i would love to hear that yeah so my grandfather's a pastor um and my entire life i grow up very close to him. We lived in the same town. My dad has been, uh, for, for many, many years, my dad was at his side kind of doing the, the professional church life vocational ministry thing. Uh, so my home was, was a home that, a home of faith, a home of faithfulness, a home of uh, church going and church life and uh, largely an orientation toward others. And as a young child, uh, my grandfather would host people from all over the world who would come into our church and would speak, you know, on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night. And it seemed like many, many nights out of the year, we would end up back at my grandfather's house after church on a Sunday night for some kind of potluck dinner with this, this missionary couple who had come in from some far flung land. So it's, you know, Indonesia and the Philippines and sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and South America. And in ways I didn't understand until much, much later, I, I was exposed to the world in a, in an intimate and fascinating and sort of epic way from my earliest years. It was, it wasn't PowerPoint and amazing videos back then. It was, it was slideshows on a carousel that projected up onto a, a tripod screen or something, but um, the stories that they told were fascinating and the artifacts that they brought for, for the display table, you know, were, were exotic. And uh, for a child without the internet, uh, that was an amazing sort of passport to the world. It was, it was better than National Geographic. And I think I, I would later come to understand that, that that early exposure to different cultures, different peoples and, sort of a, a normalization in some ways of, of people who were different than us uh, really opened up my, my appetite for the world in, in ways that I would later learn to lean into. Where did you go? Did you go to college? Where did you go to college? And where did you live? How did you meet your wife? Like, what did that look like leading up to, because your wife's obviously, you know, in this with you. And I'm, I've been married coming up on nine years. Like, I know the difficulties of, you know, just getting aligned and staying aligned and fostering that relationship. So can you talk a little bit about that and how preemptive love ultimately got started? Yeah. So, uh, went to college at a small liberal arts university where I met my wife and, um, we kind of knew each other the entire four years of school, but, uh, ended up getting engaged our senior year and getting married the week after we graduated. And, uh, that was the, the summer of 2001 and just a few months after getting married, then I, I was in grad school at Baylor and I'm coming out of class and start hearing rumors that some airplane has flown into the world trade center. And then soon it's the second airplane and soon it's the Pentagon and soon it's Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, our, our world changed that day. And I think our, 
uh, our temple was destroyed as Americans in a lot of ways. Our, our two temples, our twin temples, but the, the temple of capitalism was was attacked and destroyed in many ways. And then the temple of national security was attacked and destroyed. And, and in, in a lot of ways, we woke up the next day and didn't know where to worship uh, anymore because because our capitalism was under threat and our national security was under threat. And we were, we were orienting ourselves toward this conflict in a way that, that only saw it through this lens that they hate our way of life. They are against us, us versus them. And them very quickly started to become all Muslims for a lot of people. And, and them, and they actually started to become Brown people altogether. I mean, there were, massive uh, spikes in violence against Sikhs um, who are not Muslim, but uh, wear clothing that many people consider to be similar to or associated with Arabs or with Muslims. And so uh, we started to see this, this sort of widespread generalized violence against people that were considered to be other. And I think as a, as a young married couple uh, with our whole future ahead of us, it it was formative. It was it was something that um, it was a fork in the road for a lot of us. And a lot of friends signed up for, raised their hand and said, "Yeah, I want to go turn Afghanistan into a parking lot, and, and I want to bomb Iraq back to the Stone Age." I got that on some level. I really understood that, but it, it wasn't. I don't come from a family like that, uh, that that served in the military in that way, and it wasn't my most natural reaction. My my most natural reaction was kind of to follow the path of my grandfather. And the friends that he'd introduced me to over the years. And um, I kind of took a, if you can't kill them, we got to convert them approach. Um, And so I headed down that road for a while until we ended up moving to to the Middle East. And um, somewhere along the way, I just realized that I've kind of been imagining myself to be drastically different than my, my soldier friends. I saw them as, as conquering people. I, I saw them as sort of not being very nuanced and, and wanting to just conquer Muslims and win. And I, I considered myself somehow to be a lot more refined and a lot more intelligent and uh, a lot more righteous, honestly. Um, and somewhere along the way in the Middle East, that all just sort of breaking down for me. And I realized that at least the way I am, the way I'm doing this, I'm every bit as conquering as I imagine them to be. I actually want to win just as much as I think they want to win. I actually want to destroy Muslims just as much as they want to destroy Muslims. I'm, I'm trying to do it by obliterating their faith and obliterating their culture on some level. Those guys over there might be doing it with guns and tanks, but at the end of the day, we're kind of out for the same thing. We actually may not either one of us believe that there's anything inherently good in Iraq or inherently good in Afghanistan or later inherently good in Syria. And so we're, we're all out to conquer each other and we're all out to win. And it was a really, really transformative realization for me. Thank you for sharing that. You, a few seconds ago, you jumped from working through the, the mindset of your friends. Then you said, and then we moved to the Middle East. Like, what did that, like, that was a quick, a, a big jump because most people never just like at all ever moved to the Middle East. And so what, what, what was that to start? Was that to launch preemptive love or was that, was that because, I guess it's before this because you still had that mindset when you went over, uh, was that to go over and do this conquering that you just described or 
Um, what, what was that, that move? What did that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think we went through a, a fairly traditional missionary outlet that it was a well-worn path in a lot of ways, but, but it was a path that was no longer syncing up with my experiences of the world and who I was, who I was coming to understand myself to be and, and, frankly, who I was coming to understand the enemy to be. I mean, the very one, I, I wouldn't have said they were the enemy at that time. I, mean, I, I had a more nuanced view than that. But the truth is I didn't love Muhammad sitting across the table from me in the sweet shop for who he was. I didn't love Muhammad the Muslim. Uh, I only loved Muhammad the former Muslim, the, the guy that I could potentially make a former Muslim, the guy that I could win to my side, the guy whose ideology I could overcome, the guy whose theology I could beat down, um, the guy that I could sort of finagle out of some of his cultural practices that I didn't approve of. And so, I mean, ultimately, that's, that's not love. If you only love the reflection of yourself in someone else, if you only love who you can make them be, right. that, that's not love, that's vanity. Yeah, no, that's that's helpful. That's helpful. So pr- let's talk preemptive love for a little bit. Um, one of my favorite organizations, my family and I give every month to preemptive love to you guys. And it's our favorite. It might be our favorite. And I I say this, ter- I use this term loosely, expense. Like it's our favorite money that goes out of our pockets every month because we know, we can see very tangibly, you know, how the money is being used, what it's going toward and just the effect that it's having. And we just love, love, love what you guys are doing. Um, and very excited about it, really, just very excited about how we can continue to partner. So talk, for everybody that doesn't know about preemptive love, like talk talk about what you're doing, give us a few stories, things that we can tangibly like grab onto and grasp onto, like current current things that you guys are diving into headfirst, the, the kinds of people you're loving, the kinds of situations you're finding yourself in. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I'm super honored that, that you're on the team with us. That means a lot. Well, let me, let me start at the beginning real fast because there's a sort of an anchoring story that then launched us off into a lot, a lot of this. I, we had decided to move into Iraq then in the middle of the Iraq war um, at the height of sectarian violence. And I was in a hotel lobby in a cafe um, during wartime. It's, it's common that you know a, an entire city might be without electricity or without internet or you know, whatever, but, but often there in major cities, there are these hotels that, that become these meeting spots, these hot spots where all the journalists and the diplomats and the aid workers and everyone kind of convenes. So I was in one of these hotels and, uh, I would go there pretty much every day to drink coffee and tea and work in the, the cafe on, on whatever reports or whatever I was doing. And I, I got to know the cafe people, the workers and, and things like that. One day the chai guy, sort of hovers over my table awkwardly after setting my cup of tea down. And he finally gets up the nerve to ask me, Hey, Mr. Jeremy, can I ask you a favor? And so he goes on to tell me about his little cousin and he holds his hand about this far off the ground, you know, and he goes, you know, she's about yay big now. But when she was born, she was born with this huge hole in her heart. And after all these decades in Iraq of war with Iran and the UN sanctions and embargo against our country and uh, Al Qaeda killing off our doctors and nurses. And now the war, we don't have a doctor, a nurse, a hospital, anyone in Iraq who can save her life. You're an American. I know you came here to help us. Will you help my cousin? 
I mean, I was there to help. Um, we hadn't formally started anything yet, but, but I had come in wanting to help, wanting to learn more about conflict and how to help orphans and how to engage in times of conflict and violence. And, but this was so far outside of the scope of what we were doing. I didn't know how to get a kid outside the country for surgery. I didn't know how to get doctors inside the country for surgery. And I tried to just beg off the whole thing, but he was really humble and he kind of gave me courage to just try and fail. And uh, he basically said, look, she's going to die anyway. You're overthinking this. You know, you're, you're thinking, what if I fail? Which I, I was. Uh, I didn't want to didn't want to make Americans look bad. I didn't want to make, you know, Christians look bad. And I, there was all kinds of things. I, I didn't want to make myself look bad. I didn't want to not be able to come back to my favorite coffee shop. Um, so I, it was just better to not try than to try and fail. And he basically said, but what if you succeed? You know, like she's going to die anyway. You're not going to accelerate her death. But but what if you succeed? You could really accelerate her life. You could save her life. And and so he gave me permission to, to try and fail, which was a great gift. And I agreed a couple of days later to meet with the dad. So dad shows up again, same coffee shop, and he brings a little girl to the meeting. And they walk in the room and saddle up beside me at the table. And she sits across from me coloring on a napkin while dad and I try to figure out how to communicate about what's going on with her heart. And I didn't get any of it. But on this medical report that he pulled out, it said in big block, English letters, whole in heart. And that was enough for me. I mean, I, I agreed to take that medical report and make a few phone calls. And I was pretty sure that I would fail. I promised him I didn't know anyone who could help. But to my surprise, on the other end of the line, my first or second phone call, uh, the woman on the other end was like, oh, yeah, I know all about that. Um, come on over and we'll see what we can do for her. And that kind of set us down. It was just one step. It was just one child. But it, it sent us down a direction where we ultimately became uh, kind of the last stop of hope for a lot of these kids who, who for one reason or another, um, intra-family tribal marriages, chemical warfare, the fallout of war, poverty, all this kind of stuff had conspired together to create a massive rise in birth defects across the country. And we became one of the last outposts of hope for a lot of these kids who needed life-saving surgeries. And my number started getting traded around my phone number. People started calling me left and right and trying to put their kids in front of me so that we would provide them with surgeries. And um, people started showing up at my house that they weren't supposed to know where I lived. And taxi drivers would just bring strangers by. And uh, pretty soon it was like, wow, this something's happening here. Maybe we should, maybe we should organize it. Maybe we should turn it into something official. And so it was kind of out of that energy in that moment that, preemptive love as an organization was born. And, and the, the prevailing idea was when you're surrounded by people, militias and terrorists and standing armies who, who adopt the basic posture of shoot first, ask questions later, could we dare to be a people who would love first and ask questions later in a, in a country beset by a preemptive war committed against it? Uh, could we be a people of preemptive love and could we dare to jump forward to, to help you, love you, serve you before you do anything to, to help us or to get us. And uh, so, yeah, for the last decade plus, we've been blackmailing ourselves, painting ourselves into a corner 
so that mm. when, when the world is scary as hell, we don't have any way out except to love anyway. Yeah. So tell me about you. I'm glad you ended there because my next, where I wanted to go next was the, uh, the hashtag and the, the phrase love anyway. Um, it's, it's absolutely profound in every way and yet so easy to comprehend. And how did it, how did that come about? Was that just something you started saying or did somebody say something? Because it, it means so much to so many people and obviously you guys use it and embody it. Um, and for you to do that is a lot harder than for most, you know, Westerners here in the U.S. Um, like that, it takes on a whole different meaning for you guys to say love anyway versus, you know, somebody here. So how, how did that come about? I really see it as an evolution because the the early days, like I just said, were, were more predicated on this idea of love first, preemptive love. It was all about, it was all about firstness. It was all about the kind of brashness really in the earliest of days, because as, as a dyed in the wool Republican from Texas, who then found myself in Iraq, I had to start questioning some of my assumptions about everything that I believe. And that's not a partisan statement. It's just a statement that I, I had taken some things for granted about war. I had taken some things for granted about Saddam Hussein, about Iraq, about Muslims, about the enemy. And, and once I saw it for myself, I had to, I had to reorient myself to life, <laughs> to philosophies, to uh, politics. And um, as I started swinging back against some of that stuff, uh, some of those earliest days were, were kind of brash. I mean, preemptive love is, is a direct counterpoint to preemptive war, which the Iraq war was. Uh, preemptive love coalition is a direct play on George W. Bush's coalition of the willing. And so, so some of the early days were definitely a personal maturing process. But frankly, I, I was new. I was new to Iraq. I was new to war. I was, and, and I wasn't even particularly close to some of the most horrific parts of the war. Uh, we experienced some suicide bombings in the early days. There was a spate of kidnappings. It was, it was scary enough for someone who had just arrived, but but I would later learn there were a lot more hor- horrors to see as life would go on. And, and I think it's just that, that it was easy to say love first, ask questions later when we were sufficiently far away from some of the worst of it. But give it enough time, see your friends get killed, see your friends get kidnapped, uh, you start ducking when the bullets are flying your way, you start huddling in the den because you don't know when the next bomb might go off. A lot happened over the decade that we've been here. And um, it suddenly wasn't a very cute or helpful phrase anymore to say, ask questions later. Because frankly, all the questions of life flooded in. We had to confront them head on. What if we die? What if she's kidnapped? What if she's killed? What if she's raped? Uh, what if I'm tortured? Ask questions later just sounded stupid, honestly. Um, it, it sounded naive. It sounded glib. It, it didn't honor and respect the horrors that some of our closest friends had lived through. And then came the Syrian. And by the time the Syrian war came on in 2011, We'd seen a lot more. We'd gone through a lot more. We were a lot more scared. And 
I didn't find myself willing to just love first, ask questions later when it came to Syria. I didn't find myself running into Syria with the same naivete that I ran into Iraq. And then the Syrian war went into year two and went into year three, and we still weren't sufficiently engaged in it. And I realized that in a lot of ways, this love first, ask questions later, it's not serving us the way that we meant it to. It's not actually catapulting us into the hard places. It's not sending us to go where no one else will go to love the people that no one else will love. So we needed something else. We needed something new. We needed, we needed something for this sort of second half of life now where we'd experienced some of the scariest things and we knew there was a lot more to come. The naivety had worn off. The shine had worn off. Are we going to hunker down or are we going to find a philosophy that can drive us forward? And, and love anyway became the, the mantra to make sure that we would continue to be a people of preemptive love. Mm. So helpful. Thanks for sharing that context. That, that rattles me inside emotionally, and I, I love that. Let's talk about refugees for just a couple minutes. You've had some, you obviously have some very like firsthand experience with refugees where most people here in the West do not. And there's a lot of misconceptions, terrible information, um, you know, all these like bans and just, there's a lot of just unhelpful rhetoric and stories and data and information that is being tossed around on social media. And probably not one day goes by where my blood doesn't boil at least once coming across a story or a thread or, you know, a comment or something regarding, you know, refugees. Can you, and, and, if, and if it's not possible to do in like two or three minutes, just tell me to forget about it. We'll do it another time. But is there a way for you to be helpful in just, uh, you know, two or three minutes or however long it needs to take you? I'm just trying to be respectful of your time to help us help some of the listeners understand the realities of the refugee crisis and what you have seen firsthand and how we here in the West can be most helpful in regard to refugees? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I'd, I'd say at the outset is, you know, national security policy is national security policy. I, I don't presume to know or have access to all the intel that would, uh, you know, put a, a slam dunk on this conversation. So I think that how we want to orient ourselves as a country is clearly going to continue to be a debate. The law does allow for the president of the United States to set that policy with regard to immigration, some, certain aspects of some of this stuff about refugees and, and such. So I want to make that clear that I, I, don't, I don't think it's inherently right or wrong to allow X number of refugees or Y number of refugees in a given year. What I do think is incredibly problematic and, and actually wrong is to do so under false pretense, to propagate misleading, damaging, and actually damning information about people that then is used to justify policy. Policy can actually be set in many cases with or without justification. Um, there, there are some of these orders and, and stuff that, that can simply be executed by force of will, by force of the office. So it's not actually necessary in many cases to, to say more, to propagate false information, to undermine the credibility of an entire group of people, to undermine the credibility of 
intelligence services and things like that. So that's one overarching statement I would make. Um, refugees coming into America are by and large the most vetted, secure, safe, potentially contributing group of people that we could imagine for our country by, by many accounts. So to, to cast them as thieves and liars and terrorists and wolves in sheep's clothing, I think is, is based on a, a particularly nefarious kind of bigotry. Now that's not to say that one mistake will never be made or has never been made, but some of the things that have been held out to us as alleged supposed mistakes are really a manipulation of the facts. And we can't get into all that, but there is a lot of misinformation, disinformation really being peddled to us to undermine those who would want to have a more open door or so-called welcoming or generous or hospitable policy on this front. And I just think that's incredibly harmful. Uh, and, it, and it absolutely costs people their lives. And so, I mean, arguably it's even criminal. Um, people have absolutely died as a result of the disinformation that is spread about brown people and Muslims and people who have immigrated from other countries. So I think that it's important that we, we, we be sober minded about the facts and stuff that we share. I think another false idea is that Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, Somalia, Libya, that these, these places are just looking to empty out and come to America. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are a very small number of people who even want to immigrate to the West. Um, and the West is generally a big place. I mean, all of Europe, Canada, uh, those are more hospitable environments in a lot of people's minds. Um, because those countries have generally, over recent years, taken a, a much more level-headed tone about welcoming refugees. And so it's not like every refugee is just clamoring to get to our door anyway. Um, but you don't run away from home. You, you, don't, you don't run away from your historic home, your, your grandfather's land and his grandfather's land. You don't, you don't run away from the motherland. You don't run away from your culture. You don't run away from, uh, in, in some cases, the heart of where your religion lies uh, almost in, a, in the sense that it cannot be found elsewhere, that the trueness of your religion almost cannot be found or practiced if you're not um, close to the temple. You don't run away from all that if you are not running away from something that is incredibly horrific. And so we need to get back in touch with some of our humanity and understand that anyone who would dare to take this journey anyone who would dare to subject themselves to this kind of scrutiny, anywhere who would get in a death dinghy and try and cross the Mediterranean with, with their babies in life jackets after they see boat after boat after boat ahead of them capsize and people die, anyone who would do that must be running from something especially horrific. And they are. They are. They are, they are running from the likes of ISIS and they are running from tyrants and they are running from chemical gas attacks that choke out their lungs and see their babies suffocate in front of them. They, they are running for their lives and we would do well to pay attention to that because if to the degree that we shut them out, 
but particularly to the degree that we shut them out with hateful rhetoric, we are absolutely laying track for the rise of ISIS 4.0. We are sowing the seeds today that will result in the next round of this whole thing happening. And so we, we become complicit contributors to the cycle of violence. Not on the same scale as ISIS. I don't, there's no equivalency here, but, but we have a role to play here. And someone has to ultimately take the risk. Someone has to ultimately step toward the thing that scares them. Someone has to ultimately stop returning violence for violence and, and say, no, I'll, I'll take that risk. I'll absorb that pain into my body. I'll absorb that pain into my community. And if it hurts, I won't swing back. I won't retaliate. And that's who we could be. That's who the Canadians are proving to be more and more. But we seem to be choosing not to be those people. Yeah, super helpful, Jeremy. That's that's really great. And it it's just such a it's such a frustrating time. You know this. You know, you've been back, you know, back and forth and you've seen a lot of this. And obviously you're you're, you know, on social media and stuff. Like there's just so much fear and um, very insightful, hateful rhetoric. And we're creating a, an environment where there's not enough people stepping up and, you know, with a love anyway type of attitude. And there's just all this fear about what could happen and what might happen in that one in a, you know, one in a million or whatever the statistic is. And I'm just so grateful for what you just shared, which I think will be helpful to so many. And I'm just so grateful for your example, right? It's one thing to say it, People here can sit here and they can give the same spiel you just did. But what you just shared is coming from someone in a team of people that are in the middle of it. They're seeing this stuff firsthand. There's no, oh, he said or she said here. This is you right in the middle of it. And so it, it, it come, what you just shared comes with an extra bit of weight. And so I'm very grateful for that. And um, out of respect for your time, I'm going to begin to wrap up here. Before I ask the last two questions. Um, I just want to take 30 seconds and honor you. I'm so grateful for you. I don't, you know, we've never met. I hope that changes someday, but I'm so, I, I feel like I have a deep love for you and for preemptive love and for what you're doing because I I, I, I want to be the, the kind of person that you are and the kind of person you're describing, this love anyway person. This is a very sobering, um, <laughs> emotionally charged conversation for me because you know I know your family's there. You've given up so much and you are putting yourself right in the middle of you know lots of potential harm and um, you've described some really just horrific things that have happened and we can see that from you know just whether it's the news or your social media or whatever, like we can see the things that are happening and you're choosing to stick there. And that's just a very, very rare thing. And so I just want to honor you for that. Um, and I want to just encourage you in the work that you're doing. And um, yeah, we're, we're here to support. I hope that some people that are listening will begin to support you guys in the ways that so many have, my family included. And, you know, we're here to support the work that you guys are doing. We really are. Thanks, brother. Appreciate that so much. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I really mean that. So the, the second to last question is a hypothetical question, which this is the one that I always ask at the end. Someday you're going to die, right? Hopefully it's many, many years from now. And your family, your friends, the people that supported you in preemptive love and people that you have helped in Syria, Iraq, you know, the people that you've touched are there. Um, and again, for some odd reason, I'm giving your eulogy. And I'm I'm speaking your legacy over these uh, this large group of people that have gathered to 
you know, mourn and celebrate your life. What do you hope, Jeremy, that I would say on that day about your legacy? Maybe something like, no matter what life threw at them, they loved anyway, or he loved anyway, or or maybe even maybe even better, um, he considered others to be better than himself. I, and I don't I don't think I'm there. <laughs> Well, if your legacy is he loved anyway and he thought of people better than himself and, and and likewise, you know, you said we, I want, you know, I want to include your family in there. You you obviously included them in. I think that's a fantastic legacy and something worth living and ultimately dying for. So that's a great legacy, man. As we wrap up here, how can people, it is now 1130 uh, in Iraq where you're calling, where you're on the phone from. Um, so I want to let you go. Before we go, how can people you know, keep in touch with you. What would you, they're listening right now to you and you want to tell them like, here's, here's what you should read. Here's what you should watch. Here's how you can partner with us. What is some of that information you can give us? Yeah, we're really active on online. So I think uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter uh, are, are always the best places to find us. Um, Preemptive love is our handle on all those spaces. Preemptive love. That's two E's, no dash, preemptive love. So yeah, so uh, we're active on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, and then I'm on all those spaces as well. Uh, you can find me, Jeremy Courtney. That'd be uh, a great place to hang out and meet, and uh, that's where we push out our stories and the experiences we're having here every day from the Iraq and Syria side of what we do. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening, your late evening to spend time with me and with us. I'm so excited to get your, you know, a little more of your story out there. And um, thank you so much for joining me, Jeremy. Friends, thank you so much for joining Jeremy and me today. I hope you have been encouraged and challenged. Please, 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 I cannot stress please enough, go follow Preemptive Love Coalition and Jeremy Courtney on social media. Just look them up, you'll find them. You'll be encouraged, challenged, and awakened to the needs of so, so many incredible people. I also encourage you to give a one-time or a monthly gift to Preemptive Love Coalition. My wife and I give monthly to them, and it's one of our favorite giving opportunities for sure. As we close, some quick reminders for you. If you're willing to put in a little work, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell a friend about the stories you hear and encourage them to listen. Maybe take a screenshot of you listening to this podcast and share online. And lastly, if you want to help us make more podcasts, you can also give a few bucks a month and that helps us tremendously since it takes money to do all of this. Find out more about that opportunity by going to patreon.com slash let's give a damn that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash let's give a damn i'm going to also be picking some random apple podcast reviewers to send some let's give a damn notebooks to you can check out what they look like by visiting my instagram or let's give a damn go back a few posts so go leave a review so i have an excuse to possibly send you a notebook we actually got a few reviews from last week's call to action if you leave a review let me know on social media so i know who to get an address from when I pick one of y'all. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Okay, that's it. I'm finished. I hope you have as much fun listening to these as I do talking and sharing these stories. This one was a special one. Go out and give more dams. I love you. See you next week.